0: Where hey, you have a little indigestion, yes, why don 't you take this pill? Warning you could explode those kinds of uh, you know disclaimers aren 't always the most effective commercials, but sometimes I do feel like you know a text like this probably needs a little bit of a warning label that 's one metaphor for me, you know warning preaching Mark thirteen in a group of people who all don 't agree with each other, and most of which at the end of your sermon will not agree with you, probably will lead to some level of Further communication, be prepared when preaching this passage. Another metaphor might be uh, sort of uh, couples counseling, if you've ever been involved in helping a couple or friends that don't quite see eye to eye. Sometimes it seems like what you're trying to do is help one side, not sort of come up with what they're going to say before the other person has even gotten done talking. But you just say, okay, wait, do you understand what the other person has said? course I understand. This is why they're wrong. Well, why don't you put it in their words and we'll see if you truly understand. I feel like that's a little bit of what I'm trying to do with a passage like this as well. Um, But the best way, I think, for, uh, for us to approach this is for me to give you a little brief disclaimer from Mark 13. And it's not necessarily from Mark 13, but it is For Mark 13, and here's the disclaimer that I would want to say, how you choose to read and interpret Mark 13 does not determine whether or not you believe that Jesus will return to the earth in the second coming. I don't think that the passage we're about to look at will absolutely be the foundational text that determines whether or not you believe Jesus is coming back to the earth. In fact, in the email that will go out later today, I'm going to give a few Links So that if you don't feel like we've done as thorough a job, and we're not going to do as thorough a job presenting this, there are mountainous volumes of scholarly work produced, many of which uh, disagree with each other. And I'm going to give you a sampling of some of those in the email so that you can at least try to understand, not the straw man arguments that are out there, but sort of the best ways that other believers have shared, this is what I think is going to happen. Across the board, every one of those resources, those that disagree and those that agree with each other, all come to the conclusion that Jesus is returning to the earth at some point in time. So I want you to know, whatever we do in Mark 13 is not going to shape the eschatological approach of Trinity Church. This isn't the foundational document that I read that says whether or not Christ is coming back to the earth. For instance, we read this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses thirteen to eighteen, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have so as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that G- christ Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who were alive who were left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with a voice of an archangel with a sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord therefore encourage one another with these words. And if you want to think about the blessed hope that the New Testament talks about, which we all generally agree on, is that Jesus is coming back to the earth. This is not the only passage you could come to. Philippians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Peter, and a couple different chapters talk about the fact that our certain transformation in the future and our certain hope in the return of Christ are things that are established elsewhere than Mark 13. Understand this. This is why we as a church added the words future to what we talked about in our statement of faith about the Lord coming. But here's the problem. Michael Card said it this way. I'm going to read his quote here, and then we're going to come back and read it again. In the passage that Olivia just read for us, Jesus' language, to use Michael Card's words here, Jesus' language here shifts dramatically. Before he was describing an earthly event, something his disciples could run away from, now his language becomes apocalyptic. He begins to speak in poetic imagery to give a vivid description of how their Messiah would come. If you've ever listened to any of the music by Michael Card, you know this guy is an expert on poetic imagery. He knows how to take rock-solid truths and present them in such a way that capture the imagination, that bring to life things that if said differently might seem a little bit less dramatic, less impressive. And so sometimes the poetry, the apocalyptic nature of prophecy has that point of kind of drawing your attention. It's the clap before the words. It's the saying something to grab your attention. And Michael Card, who's written a ton that way, reads this and says, Something like that is definitely happening here. But that being a problem gives us an approach that we need to take. And so let me give you just a phrase. Here's the phrase. I saw a plane traveling across the country. Make sense to you? You know what I mean? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Because I took an AI graphic illustrator and I added that phrase in and I said give me some pictures about a plane traveling across the country and I got some ridiculous ones and I got some pretty good ones let me show you option number three most ridiculous there he is is that a plane traveling across the country yes in fact it is it is a wood block plane sitting in the front seat of a car, leisurely traveling across the country. Is that what you were thinking when I said a plane was traveling across the country? Only Bill Paradise got that one right. There are going to be three phrases we're going to look at today, and we're going to have a few option threes that I'm going to present. Things that I would say could technically be accurate, but probably not what people were thinking about. You may not be so much of a woodworker, but maybe you're more of a math person, and so option two is what came to mind. There it is, a plane traveling across the country. Isn't a plane a dimensional, geometric kind of, you know, reality going across the country? There it is, a plane traveling across the country. But more than likely, what you heard when I said I saw a plane traveling across the country is something like this. There it is. Plane traveling across the United States of America. What's the problem? It's the same word, plane, all three times. It's the same word, country, all three times. It's the same word, traveling, all three times. But one seems to be a little bit more natural One seems to be a little less natural, and one seems to be kind of obscure. Could all of them be right? They could. That's the dilemma we approach whenever we come to apocalyptic language. Whenever there's a metaphor given for something, we want to take those words literally. But literalism in the Bible is not a wooden way of reading something that allows for no poetic imagery. There are literal meanings when someone is speaking poetically or speaking metaphorically. And so our challenge, as we saw in our movie trailer last week, right, was to ask the question in this exegetical minefield of a chapter, what is Jesus talking about? And how you first hear these words might not be the best and most natural way to think about any one of these three phrases. It's also possible that what we've been told about these words may or may not be the most natural way. I do want to take this approach a little bit like a, as I said, a little bit like a marriage counselor, a little bit like a, you know, a a counselor who's going to be helping people listen to each other because I think there are orthodox and I think there are heretical ways of reaching this chapter. The orthodox way of reading it gave us last week a quadrant, if you remember. Did Jesus think he was coming, and did he come? Yes or no? Two different axes, four different options. The most ridiculous of them was that Jesus didn't think he was showing up, and then he did. We dismissed that one out of hand. There's also a heretical way of sorts of looking at it, which is that Jesus really thought it was going to happen, but poor guy, he was mistaken. He didn't know what he was talking about. That, that's just not a view that we can embrace given everything else we know about Jesus. We're going to embrace that view. Honestly, let's just close our Bibles. Let's just be done with this whole thing because we have a view of Scripture and of the nature of Christ that doesn't allow for that. And we think that's defensible because of the, the, uh, the, just the way we see, um, <laughs> just the way we read the Bible in general, right? But here are the three, three phrases that we need to focus in on. All right? First phrase is there in verses 13 and 14. We read this, and this is the last verse of our text last week. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the, phrase one, abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I'm going to offer you a ridiculous, a slightly less ridiculous, natural, and a pretty natural way of reading it, taking into account not us, but them. This is the way we usually try to read the Bible. We matter in this, but not first. The way to understand a passage isn't to ask, what does it mean for me, but what did he mean, what did the Lord mean, and what did they hear? So we're going to try and do that as best as we can, given the fact that none of us are them. And so we're trying to figure this out as best we can. And we've got a mountain of disagreeing scholars who are helping us. In quotes. Second phrase we're going to get to is in verse 26. It says in verse 24, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What does that mean? Well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? Let's try to listen to each other, both of whom holding to the fact that this is not determining everything about the second coming of Jesus, but it is a passage Jesus is reading at this time, which may or may not really refer to what we think of as the second coming of Jesus. Third phrase is this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now this is the second part of our looking through Mark 13 but though this is the second sermon, I'm I'm going to say this. Normally, when I'm presenting to these guides slides uh, for for you guys, we're uh, you know we're in the, the thirty to forty range. There are fifty eight slides today, so I'm hoping we're going to get through this well. We've been making our way through them pretty quickly, which is good. Um, but you know, hey, children's ministry, buckle up back there. We're going to be a while. Uh, That said, uh, I hope we're going to get through this in such a way that makes sense. If it does, if it doesn't, it's okay. One, I'm going to send you those links. You can further research this. Two, we're going to be coming back to a lot of this because our text next week kind of sums up everything from Mark 13. When I was talking to Matt this uh, last couple weeks about how to preach this, I said, you know, where would you break it down? How would you think about it, Mark? And Matt was like, I just preach it all in one shot. If you guys have the bladders for a two-and-a-half-hour sermon, then that's fantastic, but Matt's not even here right now. He's already had to take a break. Um, but that's what I intend to do a little bit more next week, all right? We're going to take a look at these three phrases, try to take a look at a couple approaches to how you could understand these three phrases. And then next week, as we wrap up the text, I want to kind of take it all and ask the question, what is Jesus talking about? And more accurately, then, how does that apply to us and what we look ahead to? So, just to sum up again, our four quadrants. Yes, Jesus did think he was going to return, and he did, right? That's one of our four quadrants right there. (coughs) No, he didn't think he was going to return, and he didn't. Another one that's sort of in the, the Jeremiah prophesied doom that didn't come. Jonah prophesied doom that didn't come. Why? Because repentance took place. And so the prophesied doom served its purpose. Not necessarily of forecasting, but of warning of a future that could happen without repentance. So you could say yes and no. Thank you very much for that. Are you feeling that already for me? All we've done is sum things up so far. But the question as we're trying to ask uh, uh, across the board is to uh, limit ourselves from the, yes, he thought he was coming, but no, he was wrong. And we're just trying to ask the question, what's the most natural way? But remember that what is the most natural way of reading something? In other words, if the disciples ask a question, hey, Jesus, these are impressive stones. Jesus says, yes, they are, but they're not always going to endure. This will be wiped away. And they say, "Okay, what is how, when? What is it?" Jesus last week says, "Well, these things need to happen. When you hear these things, then be ready." Here we're looking a little bit more at the signs. What is it that's going to take place? But remember, almost always in, in interactions with Jesus, people understand one thing, or they ask one thing, and Jesus doesn't limit himself to a question, does he? More often than not, Jesus presents something that expands the minds of the people who are asking a question. So we don't want to just ask, how might the disciples have heard this? Because if we had to limit Jesus to what the disciples were expecting and what the disciples were understanding, and he could never communicate beyond their understanding, well, then Jesus would be severely limited. In fact, he said, I give parables, and I do that because I want people to have to dig in at what we're trying to talk about. That's his style, to take someone's question Answer it, and then some. It's very possible Jesus is doing that here as well. But it's important to understand what's natural and just understanding that that's not the only characteristic, um, but Jesus isn't limited by that, but he at least addresses that. So let's dive into our first phrase. First phrase is the abomination of desolation. Listen to it again, starting in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, Then let those who were in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now all of that, verses 14 through 23, I think are really centered around this phrase, the abomination of desolation. Jesus has said things are going to happen. Wars, rumors of wars, global disasters, false prophets. Those things are all going to happen. Don't don't get thrown off by those things. But then he says something specific, and he uses this phrase, the abomination of desolation. We're going to think about context in a few different ways. If I'm speaking and I use a word, it's probably best to ask the question, how do I use that word in other situations? Not necessarily how do other people use that word, and certainly not how did Shakespeare use that word, right? Now those things all might relate a little bit. Aldo disagrees already, so you know what are we going to do? But I want us to focus in, in in sort of an expanding way by way of context, and so let's think about the synoptic context. Remember, Mark has a reading, a reason for including in the Olivet Discord what he does in chapter thirteen that we don't get in Luke 21, that we don't get in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Mark has his reasons, but let's understand the context just a little bit more by exploring what Matthew and Luke have to say. Make sense? So here's what we hear from Jesus in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and the passage continues. See the way that Luke Phrases that that same phrase that mark uses where he uses this term the abomination of desolation luke actually backs off from it a little bit he says what what jesus is saying here is when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies then know its desolation has come near matthew actually does sort of a different thing he kind of takes mark's approach but he's a little bit more deliberate by saying this came from somewhere He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, a phrase not in Mark, then let the the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and then they they continue on together. So you see, Luke is telling this, this has something to do with an attack on Jerusalem. Matthew is telling us that this attack on Jerusalem is somehow related to or connected to what we read in the prophet Daniel. So let's move out of what is going on right in Mark and his context to the synoptic context of what Matthew and Luke said. Let's just go back to what they seem to clearly be referring to, the Old Testament context. What is it that Daniel says that seems to be like what Jesus is alluding to? It says, and on the wing of abominations, this is Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12. There's also a reference in, in chapter 8. I just didn't have room for it on the slide. Um, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. That's probably the most most on-the-nose reference from Daniel right there. That there's one coming or something about this one is going to make something desolate and he's going to be an abomination. He's going to bring abominations until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate tour. In chapter 11, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. In that case, there's this phrase a little bit more the way Jesus uses it, not the sort of Lord, an abominator, but an abomination. The regular burnt offering, chapter 12, is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. Now, here's what most people think. Most people reading that in Daniel would say Daniel was talking way back in the day. If you remember, right, Daniel kind of overlapped both the Babylonian and the Persian empires. His his time as uh, advisor to the king really overlapped that. Remember, he was the one who gave the forecast about the handwriting on the wall, which was the indicator that not just Nebuchadnezzar's time, because Nebuchadnezzar was out by then, but Nebuchadnezzar's uh, you know ancestor, his the one to follow up him was going to lose the kingdom, and the Persians were going to take over. Daniel was over top of both of those, but to both kingdoms he also seemed to prophesy about activity outside of even those empires. So he talked about Greeks and he talked seems about Romans going on. A statue was that way. So chapters two through really all the way through the end of 12 you have to have a real grasp of kind of the history of the empires, what was going on right around that time. The Assyrians, the Romans, the Persians, the Gre- sorry, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Yeah, so, so in that, Daniel seems to be referencing something or somebody who's going to come by and do something. Most people would look and say around the time of 168 B.C., there was a guy named Antiochus. What was his name? He thought so highly of himself that he called himself Antiochus of Epiphanes, meaning the God manifest. That was, was quite the title to give himself. Everybody was less impressed with him and they called him Epimenes, which was actually the madman. So they took his title, they twisted it around, and basically said this guy was crazy nuts. But one of the crazy nuts things that he did was to put down... Well, he had tried to install his puppet rulers in Jerusalem, and ultimately the Jews got sick of it. They revolted against it. And when they revolted, Antiochus came in, and he squashed the rebellion and hard. One of the things he did in the process of it was to demoralize the Jews by setting up an altar in the temple and sacrificing a pig in the temple. Most people, because of the way that things fit in Daniel look back and say, that's what Daniel was talking about. He was clearly forecasting what Antiochus was going to do. By the time Jesus is here, Antiochus has already done that. So the question is, when Jesus is speaking, speaking into the past about a historical event that has already taken place, what is he talking about? Option three, the woodblock plane in the car moving across the country. He was remembering or reenacting something about Antiochus Epiphanes in 168. That's ridiculous. We'll just, let's all just agree that's not what he was doing. See, we're all on the same page. Isn't this wonderful? Don't we all think that option three is just absolutely ridiculous? Yeah, we do. Okay, so we're not going to do that. Option two, though, is that Jesus could be using language from the past and talking about something not that would happen in his day, but something that would happen far out in the day where we're still out here, sorry to you at home, we're still out here still looking forward to it. So that's the difficulty about reading past documents that have future language. If Jesus writing in the past is talking about something that he thinks has happened in the future, referencing something that has happened in the past, and yet we, way out here in the future, are reading it. The question we have to ask is, was this future for Jesus, but it's already happened, but it's in our past, right? This isn't like Doctor Who or anything. I'm just talking about normal timelines, okay? See, so you, so you know the way time works, right? He in the, could be talking about something in his future, but it's in our past because it's already taken place. Or is it something that was so far into the future that it's still way out there? Or is it both? But the second option is basically saying he's probably not talking about something that happens in his day or that would be seen in his day. Jesus is probably talking about something that goes way out into the future. And I'll be honest, before I started studying this, it's exactly what I believed. I just don't think it's the most natural way of reading this. It does credit to the apocalyptic stuff, especially the apocalyptic stuff that's about to come forward. But I think if you're in Jesus' time, if you're one of the disciples who's asking, Jesus, when is this temple going to be destroyed? The most natural way we would probably hear this would be something about what was about to happen in their day. But let's go to just a second, thinking about the the, the second option, the in our case, the geographic plane moving across, which can make a good amount of sense. Here's what Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself, to be God. Now, some of the resources that you'll get, you'll see this is the way John Piper looks at this passage. This is the way that more loudly, probably John MacArthur looks at this passage. It's one of probably the loudest dispensational voices out there today. But all of them would be futurists. They would essentially look at this text and say, this, Luke 21, Mark 24, 25, they're all talking out into the future. The thing that's hard for me in that Right? There, there are some parts of that that satisfy some other tensions that I have in this text, is to just say that it's largely about the future. But the difficulty that I have, it just doesn't feel like the most natural way that Jesus is having a conversation with the people right there. So that if you were to, you know, sort of pause that moment and ask Jesus and ask Peter, who's listening, hey, when is he talking about? Peter's probably thinking, this is going to be something that has to do with when this temple is destroyed. And Jesus is thinking, ah, I got you there. This actually has to at least 2,000 years of, of time before it's going to be fulfilled. To me, that just doesn't quite feel as natural a way of reading the passage. So here's what I would probably call the most natural way of reading this text about the abomination of, de- of desolation, is to say that it's about Rome's destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Seems to do credit for what Luke was talking about at the time. Seems to do credit with some of the other things that are happening. It also just seems to pay attention to some stuff in the text. Look at, let's look at the text again with me. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, those in Judea, don't go on your housetops, the one who's in their fields, and there's pregnant women, nursing infants, in those days, verse 19, in those days, if the Lord not, not cut short those days, no human being will be saved, but for the sake of the elect, he cut short the days. Was verses 1 through 13, talking about the temple. Again, most people would look and say, yeah, everything that we looked at last week sure seems to be fulfilled with the temple. Is the temple mount still there? Yes. Are those big stones still there? Yes. But most of the time when we, when we enjoy a house, they're building a house next to me. I, I, the, the basement was impressive for a little bit. But it really wasn't the thing that I pay attention to anymore. I'm excited about what they're building on top of the basement. And that's where I give my attention. I think that's probably what the disciples were doing too when they're asking about the temple. Hey, these are really big stones. They're probably not looking down here. Probably looking up here. And Jesus is probably not saying, ah, yes, but those stones, right? So it's probably that temple. Was Jesus talking about that temple? Yes. So why wouldn't verses 14 and on probably be talking about that temple? I think that makes sense too. It seems to do credit to what's right there. And then we read in verse 21, so then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, but be on your guard, it it seems even through verse 23 that Jesus is pretty clearly still talking about that event, that moment. Can we learn things from it? Absolutely. Might it be a way that if you were, come back with me in time, listening to Daniel, And Daniel's talking about abomination of desolation, and then it happens in 168, and Jesus looks back and says, wow, let me borrow that language to talk about something else that is going to happen. So in the way that Daniel was talking about something that was fulfilled in his day, I'm talking about something that will be fulfilled in the day of the people who are listening. Could that also possibly leave us a paradigm to still be able to talk about it that way into the future? I would say that would be really weird, except for Jesus is doing that right now. If you're thinking about a victory, some moment that seems to be, you're having an argument with somebody, and then you say one thing, and they concede the point, point, you're like, yes, I win. You know what that moment is? That's your Normandy. That's your D-Day moment right there, right? You seized the ground, and everything on from this point is going to be your victory in that conversation. Did you lose limbs? Did you fire bullets? No, of course not. You're talking about Normandy or D-Day or if something tragic were to happen and you called it your Pearl Harbor or your 9-11. Nobody thinks you're talking actually about that kind of seriousness, but you're using an event in the past to be able to reference something that matters for you kind of moving out into the future. It's very possible that's what Jesus is doing right here. He's borrowing a phrase from Daniel that has already happened in their past and saying, just like this had a, a real point where it was going to be filled. I think there's something here that's going to be fulfilled too. the Destruction of the temple coming within the generation of those that are right there. Does that possibly allow for us looking out into our future to be able to look back just the way that Jesus looked back? Part two is coming next week and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But if nothing else, I want you to be able to see that these are two very respectable ways of reading this passage. I don't think these are points that we ought to go to, you know, blows over, please definitely do not come to blows over these things. But I I do think that if we can respect, in particular, those who look at this from option one, those who look at this from option two, I think we can both say, like, yeah, I see see where you're coming from. Now, here comes Michael Card's quote again. Because once 23 is done... It seems a lot like he stops talking about specific stuff, specific pregnant women, specific housetops, specific fields, right? Here's, here's Michael Card again. Jace, can you find that one? Because I can't. There it is. Oh, you got me there first. Nice job. Digital beats paper every time. Jesus' language here shifts dramatically. Before he was describing an earthly event, something his disciples could run away from. Now his language becomes apocalyptic. He begins to speak in poetic imagery to give a vivid description of how their Messiah would come. Because of that point, because of what's about to happen in the text, I would say this. On the point of abomination of desolation, if you wanted to argue with me a good amount, I feel like I could argue my point. Why I think that option one is more natural way of reading it than option two. When we get to verse 24, I feel a little less confident. But let's read verse 24 and the next phrase that comes. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now, here's what we read right there in verse 24. In those days after that tribulation, verses 24 and 25, have kind of one piece of this text that's that's pretty significant. It's this losing celestial powers, right? So something that's happening there in 24 and 25 is significant. Something that's happening in 26 is also significant. The coming of the Son of Man. Now, Olivia read for us as well from Isaiah 13. She used a lot of similar language here, and just in the same way that we need to consider Jesus' context, which we've been doing, we do we also need to think of the Old Testament context he's using and how these words have been have been understood for the Jews that are right there. They would have known this passage. They would have been able to hear the metaphors in Isaiah chapter 13 for an example, the oracle concerning Babylon. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah says this is about Babylon. Some stuff happened to Babylon, but you know what you can't find that happened at the same time? The collapse of all laws of physics the destruction of all stars in the heavens, the non-existence of light from this point forward. Why not? Well, let's go to a dispensational, a futurist guy writing in the commentary Christine and I heard about when we were at Philadelphia College of Bible, the feeder college to, to Dallas Theological Seminary, the pinnacle of dispensationalism on earth, I tell you people, the Bible knowledge commentary. He says this, The statements in Mark 13.10 about heavenly bodies, sun, stars, moon, no longer functioning may figuratively describe the total turnaround of the political structure of the Near East. The same would be true of the heavens trembling and the earth shaking, which are figures of speech suggesting all-encompassing destruction. In other words, I'm not trying to take this from somebody way out there. This is a guy who's a futurist. And he's looking at Mark 13, and he's saying, this language of everything just collapsing in the heavens, it seems to be metaphoric. Because Isaiah clearly is using that same language metaphorically. Isaiah is looking at the destruction of Babylon, and when Isaiah is saying Babylon's going to go down, and he wants to talk about all the collapse of the political structures and the powers that are there, he uses that kind of celestial language, the deconstruction of things in the heavens to be able to represent the way that powers are going to fall. In other words, I'm glad that's the only spot that anybody in the Old Testament does that so that we can dismiss that point. It's just, that's not the only spot. Isaiah does that twice. You see Babylon, you see Egypt, you see Edom, all represented that way. Where when big, powerful entities are going down, you see this language of the stars falling from heaven. So how do we read that literally, if you're reading Isaiah? Well, the words matter. We take their literal meaning, but it doesn't mean we have to take it in such a woodenly literal way that we don't allow for metaphor, we don't allow for poetry. The words literally do mean something. They literally point to an actual meaning. It doesn't mean they have no meaning, but it means that the the meaning of it comes through the the poetic and apocalyptic language that's there. So that's one section that's there in the first. Can it mean the future time when Christ comes back and everything about the creative order, which Romans tells us is groaning right now, gets remade? It certainly can. But if we understand it in context, the Jews probably aren't thinking that everything in the sky is about to fall. They're probably thinking through the language of Isaiah. And since the skies didn't fall in Isaiah's time, they might not be thinking that they were going to fall in that time too. The second phrase that was there wasn't just what was going to happen in the heavens, it was the other thing that has you looking up the coming of the Son of Man. And the context for that is, again, just really clearly in Daniel. What is Daniel talking about? Well, in the same way that we need to figure out what Isaiah is talking about, any other Old Testament reference, Daniel's referring to something that has really significant importance in the the whole life of just the storyline of Jesus as the king of the world and where he takes up his power. Daniel's referring to a moment in time when the son the son of man, one like a son of man. So one who looks human comes into this angelic scene. I mean, you remember every other scene from Daniel? There's no sons of man around, right? There's beasts and wild creatures and glory that is just totally dominating the scene. Heaven in Daniel is scary because you can't find anybody who looks like you anywhere. You walk into heaven the way that Daniel describes it. And this isn't just Daniel lots of others who describe heaven, it doesn't really seem like we belong. It just doesn't look like there's anybody like us there. If we were to come, you see thrones, but the ones who are taking up these thrones, the ones who are surrounding God's throne, are so different from us. Except for Daniel 7. All of a sudden, a human walks onto the scene. And it's the moment where it feels like, oh, maybe people belong. Maybe we could actually have something going on here. And this one who looks like a person, this one who has this son of man kind of characteristics, approaches the one who seems unapproachable. He comes to the Ancient of Days and is given something. He's presented before him and then the Ancient of Days with all of this power gives that power to the son of man. You can understand why if Jesus in his day is using the phrase, son of man, he's not just saying, oh, I'm human like the rest of you guys. That's kind of what Daniel was saying. Somebody who looks human gets all this power. Well, at that moment, the phrase son of man isn't descriptive. It, it becomes a title. And Jesus is now using that title about himself over and over and over, Right? And now Jesus is saying in Mark 13 that the Son of Man will be, look at verse 26 there, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Matthew says it a little bit differently, but he says it kind of like that. Let me get to where Matthew is. Sorry, Jason, this is back a couple, uh, or sorry, forward a couple. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. How are we doing? we got Jesus' words. we got Matthew who's added a little bit. Matthew seems to say it's not that they will see the Son of Man but they'll see the sign of the Son of Man, but then he also says they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now, when I read this, this sure sounds like the second coming, right? But let me eliminate an option that I just don't think works. Even if we were to say that what Jesus is describing is the second, in his second coming, when he will return to the earth, even if we were saying that, I don't think we can say that this fulfills every New Testament prophecy about Jesus' return. Because what I read here sure doesn't sound like all those things we just read earlier about our blessed hope. These don't seem like the kind of moments when death is defeated when all suffering goes away, when there will be no more crying or tears or anything. It doesn't seem like the moment when I will be completely transformed. It doesn't seem like the moment when Jesus returns to the earth to be able to completely set up his throne. In other words, I think the option that is the least most natural reading is to say that what Mark is talking about here is fulfilling all New Testament prophecy of Jesus' return. Say that with respect for those who would understand Scripture probably in some ways better than I would, who would hold to this position. But I just don't think that Mark 13 exhausts everything. In other words, if when the temple was destroyed, you could say that Jesus was coming back at that point, I don't think that exhausts everything about when he would return in the end. And some would view that. And I'd say I just don't see that to be a natural, I see it to be the least natural reading of the full weight of everything that we understand about Jesus' return. Here's the second option. This is where I said I feel pretty good about the first phrase. I feel a little shaky about which I would call option two and which I would call option one. But I I do respect those who hold both of these positions. But I would see option two this way. This is the language for a cosmic future return of jesus now here's where i would argue for the fact that what jesus has started talking about when he moves into this apocalyptic language is moving past the temple and to the moment where the temple's behind us and the return of jesus is ahead of us i could see somebody saying with all the weirdness of these phrases and with the fact that it seems like Jesus is going to be coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, did that happen at the, at the destruction of the temple? Boy, it sure doesn't seem like that's what happened at the destruction of the temple. And so I read that and I say, but mm, well, it sure seems like it's talking about the future return. And future not just for Jesus and the disciples, but future for us even to this day. I can totally respect this, but in fact, if I was going to present these, I might present them as like both one and a half, right? They're not option three, but they're both kind of right there. Because the tension of it is that it seems like some stuff is happening here that isn't fulfilled when the temple is destroyed. But option one would be able to say, that all of this is just using Old Testament language for the attack on Jerusalem. The reason I'd say it's the most natural is because of what we usually just try to do. There's stuff that's going on in Mark 13 that sure seems to lead the disciples at that moment to think that Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen in their lifetime, particularly when we get to the verses that are going to come next week. We'll see that it sure seems like the reasonable expectation for anybody at the time could be thinking about what's happening. Apocalyptic language is what this perspective really rests on. If the second would say, boy, it sure feels like some of this stuff needs to have a little bit more language of fulfillment that that would require us to move past the temple's destruction all the way out into the future when Jesus will return because did Jesus come again in the clouds at that moment? Josephus would say, the only real historian that we have who's given much detail about the destruction of the temple, there was some pretty crazy stuff happening in the sky. Similar to the way we read of the crazy stuff that was happening in the sky when Jesus was crucified. It was dark in the middle of the day for really no reason at all. Josephus would say there were things like that that were happening. And those who would look at Josephus and say, well, let's put a lot of, of weight into his record of what's going on. Remember, Josephus isn't right in the Bible here. He's not right in Scripture. But he's a historian of what's happening. They would say, that seems to really fulfill this burden of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And Let me just give you the one point that really kind of gave me respect for this position a little bit more. This is all talking about Daniel 7, right? Daniel in the past has mentioned that the Son of Man is coming. It's in the one word that I underlined. Let's go back and look at that at the beginning of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came not from, but to the Ancient of Days. In other words, which direction does Jesus seem to be traveling in Daniel 7? From heaven or to it? It seems like he's traveling to it. And so what what those who would hold this first position are saying is essentially this. Jesus comes to the earth. Is he the rightful king? He is. By birthright, he's the rightful king. Is he established in any way as the rightful king? Has he kind of earned his place as the rightful king? No. When does that happen? It happens at the crucifixion, which John says when the Son of Man will be lifted up. And it happens at the resurrection. After that moment, Jesus is the King. And that becomes clear at the ascension. The Son of Man at that point in the ascension is going in the clouds to the King. He is going to the Ancient of Days and he is taking up his place. From there, Can he send judgment on the temple whom he has replaced? Yes, he absolutely can. Can you view that as a coming of Christ to the earth? Yes, you can. Do either option one or option two satisfy every burden that you have right now trying to think it through? No. This is why I was up till two o'clock last night. (laughs) Most of the time I'm with you guys, I feel like I can say, I really feel like this text has a claim on you. I'm trying to present what's most obvious and natural to you and you have to defy God to defy this passage. This is the one moment where I feel a little bit because I sure feel a lot of future stuff in this text. I feel hesitant putting a lot of weight on what Josephus says to be able to say that everything in Mark 13 is fulfilled at the destruction of the temple. But I also want to deal with the passage the way we normally deal with it, which is to read it the way that it feels like things would have been understood at the time. Not to say Jesus is ever limited by that, but to say that Jesus, we sure ought to respect that when we're reading something that wasn't written to us and wasn't written in our day. The burden makes sense. Option two, you're really fulfilling the sense that Jesus is coming again on the summit cloud. Option one you're really kind of leaning into the fact that this seems like this was going to happen in the day of and in the context of the people who were there. Few people even seem to understand that Jesus was leaving at this point. And we're in the Passion Week. We're on Wednesday. It's Thursday and then Good Friday. That's where we're at chronologically with Jesus. And the disciples still don't know that Jesus is even going to leave. So would it make sense that they're asking when he's going to come back? Probably not. But those are the tensions between option one and option two. This is also why even the most bold, well, not the most bold, the most bold are the most bold because they don't do this. But even some of the more scholarly have put themselves out there and said, this is where I'm leaning, but I could be persuaded otherwise. If you click on any of the links that we'll send out later, you'll hear that kind of language in these guys. They're presenting their case. They're saying, if I have to lean one way or the other, I'm leaning here, but I could be persuaded here. I feel like that's the way I'm presenting this to you guys. I don't want us branding others as heretics, but as long as we're still opting for Christ to come back, I think we could say both of these can be very orthodox views of what's happening here in Mark 13. All right? Third phrase, and let's move along. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away let see where we're looking at this one at the end. This is the last phrase, really seems to lend weight to what R.C. Sproul said last week. Well, he didn't say it last week, I quoted him last week. Suppose I were to claim that last night I received a special revelation from God. I predict that sometime within the next 12 months the United States will fall, the Capitol building in Washington will be destroyed, the White House will be demolished, 50 states of the Union will be dissolved, and the United States as an independent nation will cease to exist. I don't know the exact timing but only that it will happen sometime within the next 12 months. Without question, within a year, you would know for certain whether my claim was true or false. If it didn't come to pass, you would be justified in labeling me a false prophet, unworthy of your attention. You feel the burden that verses 30 and 31 place upon this text? If Jesus is a true prophet... And he's saying that all of these things were going to happen within the lifetime of those that were listening there, within that generation, and they don't happen, meaning if what Jesus means is, I'm coming back again, fulfilling everything that the New Testament promises, and that's all going to happen within your generation, then Jesus was a liar, because it did not happen that way. If you back off from it a little bit and say, okay, all of this happened to a degree within the lifetime of Jesus... And that some of the stronger predictions that he made didn't happen because of repentance, like Jonah's prediction over Nineveh didn't happen. Or that there was a meaning, just like Jesus used the abomination from desolation in the past and said that happened to a certain degree then. It's going to happen to a certain degree in your lifetime and we can still look forward to it in the future. I think all of those are very orthodox ways of viewing this text. But at the end of it, we're asking the question, what does it mean that heaven and earth will pass away? Again, I'm going to put option three out there and just say the plane traveling in the car, moving across the country, looking out the window. I don't think that this verse fulfills all New Testament prophecy of Jesus' return. The second and third options, again, would just kind of be in the same vein. This transitions to a future day of Jesus' return. This is tough to say, isn't it? Because to hold this view, what you really need to be able to do is to look out into the future and say that what Jesus meant by generation isn't what they thought of in terms of generation. When Jesus says things that give an impression that things are going to happen soon or that he is at the very gate, that he is near, these sorts of phrases, verse 29, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The weakness of holding this as a finally future view is that you have to do some work with those words, don't you? You have to ask the question, were the people who would have heard Jesus and say, this is happening in our day, were they mistaken? We don't want to say Jesus is mistaken, so then what we would need to do to be faithful is to say Jesus meant something broader by near or by soon or by uh, this generation. He meant something other than the literal way they would have heard it. Is that possible? It's possible. It just doesn't feel most natural. What feels to be most natural is the way that R.C. Sproul is saying it. That something about it to fulfill that burden probably needed to happen around the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That would be what seems to fulfill this idea of the generation not passing until all these things take place. Heaven and earth passing away, and that's the phrase I want to I think with you a little bit about because I I have heard that the phrase heavens and earth there refer to the way the temple was viewed at the time, that the heavens and that the earth are married together in the temple. Kind of the way you'd think of the Garden of Eden, maybe, or even the very nature of humanity. Made from the dirt, but the, the earth and the dirt and the dust, but having the the life of God breathed into us. There's a marriage of heaven and earth and us. There's a marriage of heaven and earth and Eden. There's a marriage of heaven and earth in the temple, and that heaven and earth could refer to the temple here. Uh, maybe I I don't buy it, just in the sense that that feels a little bit more like the plane sitting in a car, looking out the window, traveling across the country. It, it doesn't feel like a legit way of looking at it. I I think more, Psalm 102 is probably a better way of trying to ask this question. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. I, I, I hear passages like that that laid a lot more, I think, significance to the fact that in this sense, he's talking about heavens and earth. It seems like he's literally talking about heavens and earth passing away. The one thing you think will always be here. Won't always be here, but what will? God's words. Now, normally, we don't handle texts like this. We don't take time to ask questions of how do lots of people disagree. But because most people seem to disagree about this, honestly, this feels like the only way to really kind of dive into the water with you. Again, we'll look at it a little bit more, try to draw some some questions and conclusions at the end. And I'm going to sort of give you my final take on where I think Mark 13 comes down at the end of all this. But there are three things that I think we could all agree on that I want us to not walk away from this passage without considering. The first is this, and I hope you heard it as we walked through. God always protects his people. That's the first lesson I want us to hear. So whether you're talking about the people of Jesus' day or the people that have continued on, that we're a part of, God always protects his people. The way he said it at the time was, For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Afterwards, he says that the elect will want to be deceived. But the thing for us, or sorry, that some will want to deceive the elect. There might be some elect who want to be deceived as well. But, but in that burden, it's good for us to remember that whether you're talking about the shakiness of this day, the shakiness of past days, the shakiness of future days, God's got you. You whom he chose, he will protect It's the first lesson we draw from this. The second lesson we draw from this is not only that God always protects his people, but that God always equips his people. Listen to verses 22 and 23. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Didn't you feel a little bit of this burden last week when we were looking at verses 1 through 13? The way that Jesus was able to say, certain things are going to happen in the future. And the reason I'm telling you is that if these came and shocked you, I realized they would would really weaken your faith. They would would weaken your courage to continue to go on. I want you to be equipped with this knowledge. I've seen it all coming before it happens. That was amazingly true in the immediate context. The temple was the one thing they never thought thought would be taken from them. And Jesus said it was. It was going to be taken, and it was taken. And he told them about it beforehand so that you would not, so that they would not be shaken. So how do you handle the moments where Jesus has looked across the pages of Scripture and you and said, see, I've told you beforehand. In this world, you will have trouble but take heart, I've overcome the world. What's he doing for us there? The exact same thing he was doing for them. Letting letting us know that not only is Jesus protecting us, but he will always equip his people as well so that we can take heart. The last is to remember that God always keeps his word. And there I think I put the wrong verse up for it but it's really the last passage we were looking at. No matter what you think the words heaven and earth passing away mean, here's what they emphasize. There will never come a day when Jesus' words will expire. There will never come a day when the promises of God won't be fulfilled. There will never come a day in your life either in the future or in the present because of how intense things are, where you're, you've done something or others have done something so that God says, oh man, I would have loved to have done that, but you blew it. You made it impossible for me to keep my promise. There has never been evil on the face of the earth that has made it impossible for God to keep his word. Heaven and earth may pass away. But the Lord always protects his people, the Lord always equips his people, and the Lord always keeps his word. No matter where we come down on any one of these options, I think we need to remember those three things. Because those have been the comfort of God's people across the years, and they will continue to be the comfort of God's people until he comes again.